And so I think the, 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 the real reckoning that we all are going to have to deal with is the possibility that the way that we've been conditioned um, to think that we should live, go to university, move to a big city, get the high paying job, you know, work, work yourself six days a week um, and have no space, have no buffer, have no resiliency, you know, rely, rely, rely on food that's coming from unknown sources, rely on infrastructural systems that we have no idea how they work. You know, you flush your toilet, you turn on your tap. It's all like magic. You know, all that is crap. (laughs) It really is. It's just like we, we have, we have allowed ourselves to be duped into thinking that um, everything can be provided for us and that all we have to do in exchange is like give our lives over to a corporation or a university or, you know, whatever other institution. Um, and that, and that we're going to get by in that way. I think the, the real reckoning is for all of us, including myself is really thinking about whether this is the best way to live. Welcome to the chasing passion podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My mission, my goal, my duty is to interview people who are following their passion and make a living from it. Instead of using the expression finding your passion, I like to use the term chasing passion. This means that you have to experiment and try things over time until you eventually find work that you enjoy doing and that you're actually good at, which ultimately becomes your passion. Of course, our interests, what we enjoy, our curiosities might change over time, which is why it's an endless pursuit, which is why we must chase it. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Bradley Garrett, who's an American social and cultural geographer at University College Dublin in Ireland and a writer for the Guardian newspaper in the UK. He describes his research interest as being at the intersections of cultural geography, archaeology and visual methods and writes that his research is about finding the hidden in the world. He's the author of five books along with numerous publications and his latest book is Bunker, Building for the End of Times which discusses the idea of prepping and that the bunker is all around us, including malls, airports, vehicles we drive in, and most importantly, it's in our minds. This was a fascinating conversation and I really, really enjoyed it. You can learn more about Bradley by visiting his website bradleyguard.com or his Instagram, which is The Goblin Merchant, or get some of his books or you can even listen to his past interviews, talks. I mean, there's a lot of information available and I will link all of these in the show notes, which can be found on chasingpassionpodcast.com forward slash 62. I'd like to highlight the fact that during the recording of this podcast, Bradley was evacuated from his home due to the ongoing Californian fires and to my surprise, he was kind enough to continue recording podcasts from his car. Now, towards the end of the podcast, his phone overheated from recording, or just from having the, from doing the podcast, and we had to discontinue recording the podcast. 
So, I mean, wow, I was very、um, surprised by that. All right, without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. And you were saying like the pandemic kind of、um, helped you out because you're like, you were writing the book, you got to spend time with your mom.、Uh, it's kind of, you know, kind of worked out for you, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's been the case for a lot of people that the pandemic,、yeah. um, you know, it, it acted as a way of forcefully re- realigning our priorities. So,、mm. you know, those of us that were really wrapped up with work and hobbies and being away from family and doing our own thing, suddenly it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> we need to go back. We need to take care of the people we care about.、Um, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who had kind of、um, obscure hobbies that they were spending a lot of time doing, and they, and they suddenly realized that those things weren't that important anymore, you know? And so,、um, you know, part of, some of those people have actually become preppers now. You know, they've, they've shifted their priorities into thinking about stockpiling food and. Uh, building skills that might be useful in an emergency.、Um, and that's been kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of that seemed、um, non essential before the pandemic. And now suddenly it's like, oh, that's quite important, actually. I need to have those skills at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm going through this right now. We're, you know, we're, we're being evacuated from where I live because of, of a wildfire. And because I've spent so much time thinking about prepping. Not just because I was working on the book, but also because of the pandemic.、Um, we were fine. We were ready to go. You know, I had the car loaded up with camping gear, and we've got, our, we've got two guinea pigs that you know, we, we can load up very quickly and <laughs> get them out of the house.、Uh, these are things that you, you don't want to be practicing, but then again,、uh, this is real life. You know, and in some ways, we've all been living in kind of a, a fantasy land you know, where we expect everything to go smoothly all the time. That's not the way human beings have lived for most of our existence. And I think,、um, you know, the Spartan in me is like, this, ma- this has made us soft, you know, like actually a little bit of、uh, a little bit of crisis is kind of good for building up resiliency.、Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And you made an interesting point that, you know, like,、um, you know, thousands of years ago, like we, we were never supposed to like run in a smoothly kind of run economy. It was always like, you know, kind of unexpected. And we always had these. Kind of weird things happening around the world, and we, we're kind of seeing that now. So, yeah, no, that's definitely an interesting point. And, um, you know, if, if you were at a party and somebody asked you, What do you do? um How would you answer that question? Because, I mean, you've done a lot of things before, but like right now, how would you answer that question? uh Well, I'm I'm a i'm a social and cultural geographer, so you can imagine a kind of cross section between geography and anthropology um where I spend my time thinking about and working with people who are who are、um, uh, committed to particular practices, and those practices tend to shape the world around us. And so that's what I'm trying to understand. You know,、uh, put in the context of bunkers, for instance.、Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you if you drive around on the day to day, you wouldn't necessarily notice that that there are bunkers all over the place, right? Or that people are are preparing for disaster. Yeah. That's something that, that you need to do ethnographic research to understand. You have to go and live with communities. You have to be invited into the spaces that they're building. And once you start seeing those spaces, suddenly they're everywhere,、mm-hmm. right? You know, do, doing that kind of research drastically alters the way that you see the world. And so, my job as a geographer is to basically explain that to people in story form, you know, to tell stories about the world that we live in. 
about how it's being shaped uh, and about how the the communities that we build um, shapes the spaces around us. That's essentially what I'm doing all the time, whether I'm whether I'm talking to urban explorers that are sneaking into off limits places or whether I'm hanging out with preppers that are building bunkers um, uh, or whether I'm, I'm working with, with public space activists that are trying to stop the privatization of public spaces. Um, those are, those are practices that aren't necessarily immediately apparent unless you do deep research. And so that's, that's always my project. I always try and work in like three to five year blocks with a community of people who are doing something that I find interesting. And, uh, and I just work to, to unpick their practices and, and see what those spaces look like that they're building and, and relay those stories to people. Mm. And like, you know, you, like, you're very curious about these things. Like, were you always like that? Like, what was like a child? Like, were you always curious about, you know, exploring geography? Like, I'm just curious to know what were you like as a child? And the reason why I asked that is I think like as children, we naturally gravitate towards the things we're naturally born to do in a way. So I'd love to know, like, what were you like as a child? What were you curious about? What were you interested by? Yeah. What were you like? Oh man, I was absolutely obsessed with skateboarding. <laughs> I, for, from about the age of fourteen or fifteen, I start I started skateboarding, and um, in Southern California, obviously this is it's just a concrete playground. Mm. You know the 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 concrete stretches from from the coast about sixty miles inland, and it's wow. just an endless endless array of 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 spots to skate. Yeah, and um skateboarding is inherently geographic because because you think about places in a totally different way right on on the most basic level you take some part of the built environment like a handrail on a set of stairs and you totally alter its person its purpose right Mm. it's meant to keep you safe it's meant to to give you something to hold on to so that you don't (laughs) fall down and so we immediately turn into the most dangerous object (laughs) possible when you slide down it on a board you know yeah um but but we also spent so much time like uh, in schools when they were closed on weekends. We would hop the fence and go skate in the schools when they were empty, or um, we would go behind grocery stores and they would have these amazing loading docks. Mm. And in order to be there when the trucks aren't there, you have to go at really odd hours. So so we'd go at like you know two in the morning and set up floodlights and turn it into a skate park basically. Wow. Um, and uh, I spent about. It's probably a better part of a decade um, out skateboarding eight, 10 hours a day. It's all I did. Uh, and I just, I, I love the way that it, um, uh, it built a kind of, a, a kind of psychic geography of Southern California in my head that had very little to do with the geography that everyone else understands. You know, most mm. people move through the world and they, they go to work, they go home, they go visit family, they go to restaurants, they go shopping, you know, like, their their worlds are built around those things but when you get heavily invested in a practice like skateboarding um your your mental map is is a completely different thing you know you think about the height of curbs the length of handrails sets of stairs so i like i could i could run through at any moment i can give you a five stair a seven stair a nine stair and i can tell you exactly where they are all over southern california wow um and I think that that, that certainly had uh, an effect on how I think about the built environment because I, I think about it immediately in exploratory terms, mm. right? It's like y- you can understand something completely different about the city if you interact with the city in a different way. Mm. Um, 
so that's part of it. The other, but then once I, once I got a car, I started venturing into the Mojave desert a lot, which was, you know, if you, if you drive past all that concrete, you end up in the Mojave, like, uh, that stretch out to Las Vegas. Right. And, and I would go take my four wheel drive and drive around the desert and find like old cultural style, old cultural sites and, um, petroglyphs that were left behind by native Americans thousands of years ago. And, um, that triggered an interest in me in, in archeology span and in traveling. And eventually that, that became my first career. Um, so I got, I got my, uh, uh, my undergraduate degrees in anthropology and history. And, uh, then I did archeology span in, in Mexico, Hawaii, Northern California, um, on the East Coast, in New Jersey, in New York City. I was all over the place, traveling, excavating things, learning about things. But then I was in Mexico, <laughs> and uh, I ran into these archaeologists that had come out to the site we were working on, mm-hmm. and and they brought all these scuba tanks with them. And what they told us is that there were these these limestone sinkholes in the ground. They're called cenotes in Spanish. Right. And when um uh if you dive into those cenotes you'll find prehistoric remains like this is hard to explain but like imagine this sinkhole goes straight down into the ground right you jump in with your scuba gear and you sink down 20 30 meters and then there will be a cave system you go into that cave and sometimes you would find these these kind of altars that were like cut into the the limestone rock down there and they would be full of artifacts sometimes they would be full of of human remains like skulls would be stuck in the altars. Mm. And what the archeologists explained to me was that those places um, used to be dry. They were dry caves that people used. And obviously at, at the end of the ice age, mm, uh, as everything melted yeah. and filled yeah. up, it went underwater. And so um, the most amazing moment to me uh, that, that totally changed my career was having dinner with one of these archeologists. Uh, and he said to me, that there were um, 3,000 miles of underwater caves that were totally unexplored and they had no idea what was in them. No way. Wow. Yeah. And so so uh, I asked him, I said, how do I do this? I want to do this. I, I want to go <laughs> dive these caves with him. And he said, go do a degree in maritime archaeology or underwater archaeology. This uh-huh. is the way to do it. So, so I applied to underwater archaeology programs all over the world in Scotland and Australia in North America. And, um, and, uh, I eventually decided to do my degree at, at James Cook university in Australia and spent, uh, a year and a half out there diving shipwrecks, um, diving prehistoric sites, mapping things underwater. Uh, it was, it was great, man. It was like, it was the coolest master's degree you could possibly imagine. Cause I was, I was, you know, essentially had a small stipend at a small paycheck to go scuba diving every single day. And, uh, uh, it was, that was, that was definitely an eye-opening experience. But, um, once I finished the degree and, and went back into the workforce, I realized that there, there weren't very many jobs for maritime archeologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And like, you know, out of the, all out of scuba diving and, you know, exploring all these caves or just in terms of your whole archaeology career, like what's the most interesting thing you ever found? Like what's the most interesting discovery that ever came across that you never thought you'd find in your lifetime, but you're just like, oh, just came across it. 
man. I said there's too much so many, to even think about. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's so much to think about. Well, it's, I'll tell you, I'll give you the most significant. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not the most shocking, but, uh, in during world war two, mm-hmm. um, there was a, an American military base in Townsville, which is where I was doing my master's degree. Right. And, um, I was putting together a database of all the shipwrecks and plane wrecks that were around that area. And I ran into this story from World War II that there was a, an Amer- a, a plane with an Australian pilot full of Americans that was taking off to, to go on some sort of mission. And just as they were taking off, their, one of their engines stalled out and the plane went down in the harbor and they never found it. They never found the plane um, obviously you have to assume these people died. I mean, the, you know, but their remains were never found. And so, um, I, I was on a mission to find this thing and I went out every day with a, with a proton magnetometer that I towed behind a boat. And basically like we called it mowing the lawn, you know, you just kind of do these transects until you get a ping mm. and then you jump in the water and you see if, you know, you find anything significant. So one day we get a ping and I dive down and it's, it's the hull of an aircraft. And I started digging around underwater, <laughs> the, you know, around the side of the hole. And I could see the, the, um, uh, the number on the side of the aircraft. And I realized that well, this is it. Wow. So um, I never was able to find any of the, the remains probably because, you know, crocodiles and sharks and whatever else had yeah. taken everything away. But I was able to contact the family members of those servicemen and say, I found the plane. I found the site. And a few of them flew out to Australia and we actually had a, a burial ceremony at sea for the, mm. for the uh, lost soldiers. And that was, um, uh, it, I don't know, man, it just like, it felt, it felt so great just in terms of exploration to be able to find something like that. Yeah. Um, to find something that was like lost to time, but it even more than that, it was so great to be able to give these families closure mm. to say, you know, this, this is the resting place. You know, I, I can't solve the whole mystery here, but I can give you, I can give you a piece of it. And at least I can give, give you some closure for you and your family. So that was a, that was a really significant um, project for me. Yeah, it's it's very rewarding, I would say, you know, just like telling these people, you know, we found we found the aircraft um, and, you know, just the relief in that alone. I think that's yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And, you know, you said you were but, spending. Yeah. Well, I, just, I was just going to say, like, I, I wish I could have continued doing that work. Um, but, man, it's just so it's so hard to unless you're working for a government agency hmm. uh it's really hard to to get funding to do that kind of work because the only other way to do it is to work with treasure hunters, mm. right? Who And they have huge budgets. Um, and we ran into a couple of treasure hunters out on the high seas, people that were um, uh, looking for old shipwrecks that would have valuable items in them. And this is like, this is so gut wrenching as an archeologist, but often what they would do is they would take, they would take the props from their ships and they would hook these things up to them so that they could turn the prop wash down and they would rip the shipwrecks apart so that they could find heavy metals that, that wouldn't be blown apart by the, by the wash. Um, but in doing so they would totally destroy 
uh, you know, all that, all, all the information that we could find, all the stories that we could tell about what happened to it. Mm. You know, why did it go down and who was in it and where did things end up? All those stories would get lost because someone, you know, wanted to get, you know, whatever gold or silver or bottles or whatever else they wanted to get out of there. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that is um, absurd in a way. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you, you wish to continue, to, well, you, you would like to continue this stuff if you had the opportunity or got more funding. So now I'm curious, if you had like a billion dollars to spend on, you know, whatever sort of archaeology project you can imagine, uh, what would you like to explore the most? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I heard a story, I heard a story recently uh, about a guy here in California who bought a ghost town in Nevada. <laughs> so it was like, okay. it was, a, it was an old, it was an old mining town and he bought the whole thing. $1.3 million. It's got like 54 structures on it. It's uh 20 or 30 acres of land. And it would be so cool to link up with that guy and excavate the whole site, rebuild the history of the thing and then turn it into like a pilgrimage site, you know, that people would go there to understand the the uh california gold rush Mm. in the mid-19th century you know and these and these kind of the whole the whole west coast is pockmarked with these boom towns you know places that that sprang up and then um years later were gone it'd be really fun to kind of build a build a heritage park Mm. um but leave it in ruins so germany does this beautifully germany has these fantastic industrial ruins that they that they keep as ruins and you basically have you have to sign these waivers that say you know if i get hurt you know the park isn't responsible or whatever but then they just set you loose and you can like climb through blast furnaces and, and climb up all the ladders and into the walkways yeah it's like it's like an industrial playground you yeah know? i imagine building building something like that uh it's a that's a western ghost town would be would be super fun yeah. Just let people sort of like gas around on dune buggies and explore all the abandoned buildings and camp out there and stuff. That'd be sweet. Mm, that would be pretty cool. And like, what do you think exists in the world that we don't, that we don't have, that we have no idea? Like, for example, when I heard you on Joe Rogan, you were speaking about North Korea and the way to have like all these underground, um, underground, like, you know, planes and stuff like that. Like what else exists that most, but most of the population doesn't exist that we should probably be aware of? Uh, I think the most interesting things that I've encountered are government bunkers. There are so many. So the, the, the last estimate that I found from a journalist, uh, a journalist that was working for the New York times said that he thought there were 20,000 underground facilities around the world that that people, people weren't aware of. Um, And recently uh, in the South China sea, there were some some uh, satellite photos that were taken. Uh, China had taken over this this small island, and the satellite photos shows um, ships coming to the island and then vanishing. And you realize that this whole island has been excavated, right? Like what you see, which is basically nothing. There's like a runway and a couple of buildings. Yeah has nothing to do with what actually exists, right? So again, in terms of, of, of thinking about this geographically, like we, we always tend to think about things on a horizontal plane, mm. right? But when you start taking into account the vertical, mm. um, suddenly space is volumetric. 
And then you're like, oh my God, there's a whole world under there. Like who knows what's happening inside that base? Imagine pulling through in this ship and then it opens up into this giant subterranean bunker and there's people in there building weapons and defensive systems and all sorts of things. Like there's a whole world underground that, that we aren't aware of. Mm. And think about the underground spaces we do know. Metro systems, electricity tunnels, sewer systems. You know, this is all stuff that I spent time exploring um, in in London in particular, but all over the world, really, hmm. going into these subterranean systems and, and taking photos of them so that people could understand what they are. What's what's crazy to me is that is that, that is the tip of the iceberg. You know, there there are thousands, tens of thousands of subterranean military bases around the world that that we will never see, we'll never understand. But if if the world were to to reach some like horrific crescendo and we ended up in like all out battle, like maybe these spaces would suddenly be revealed. You know, we'd we'd start understanding that there's like fleets of ships and planes and and workers that are underground all over the place that would suddenly emerge. Um, it's certainly the case in the United States. There, there are hundreds of, they're called dumbs, deep underground military bases. There are hundreds of these all over the country. And we have very little idea of what happens inside them because the, the uh, people that work there are sworn to secrecy. And obviously that's happening in countries all over the place. So it's amazing to me that, um, you know, it was only the, the 1800s when we started seriously tunneling underground. Mm. And in that tiny period of time, yeah. we have we have totally carved out the, the center of the earth and we keep going deeper and deeper every year. You know, they've got they've got systems now in Moscow that go down 200 meters below ground. It's astounding that we can dig that far. And yet we haven't even made, you know, if you think about like, the earth's core and the mantle and the crust. Mm. Like we've barely, we've barely made it into the earth at all. I seriously feel like, like the future is underground. Oh you yeah. Know, as, Why do you think that? Well, I just like, as, as, um, <laughs> you know, as our environment continues to collapse because of climate change and geopolitical order begins to, is, is more increasingly disrupted. Um, and, uh, our resources start running out. I, I feel like the only place to go is underground. I mean, you've you've only got two options at that point, right? When the surface of the Earth starts becoming unbe- unbearable, hmm. and either you go underground or you escape the Earth and go to space. Uh, yeah, and true. It, you know, and it makes a lot more sense to go underground. Um, hmm. So I do feel like, uh, in some ways, you know the 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 skyscraper as an architectural t- uh, an architectural form was sort of indicative of a particular period of time in human history right when okay we were we you know we were thinking about globalization and interconnectivity mm. and and stacking souls and cities um i feel like that era's over now i feel like the 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 future is people digging into the ground and building a subterranean shelter that's interesting. And now that kind of brings up the point of, you know, Area 51 and what's going on there. Like, I feel like, you know, the way like <laughs> the way you were kind of saying, you know, like there's so much secrecy going around the world. Like, I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, what's the 
what's the reason behind that is it like an underlying plan you know to to do something do aliens perhaps live there you never know like um i'm curious to know like what, what are your thoughts on like the whole you know the whole well the whole point of going underground i guess i i guess like you said it is sustainable is you know instead of going to space or go underground it makes it makes sense from that perspective but like why now why 2020 why like over the last 200 years have people been doing this it's it's the there's a, a an amazing book by robert mcfarlane called underland that came out last year and um robert writes that the underground is is where we bury our secrets it's where we discard what we don't want to see anymore <laughs> and it's where we keep the things safe that we really care about and so you know, it's interesting that the underground plays all of these different roles. You know, if, if you want to build something in secret, the underground is where you do it. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get rid of nuclear waste, you mm. bury it underground, you know, and you forget about it. Well, you try to until it reemerges. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you want to keep something safe, you also you also put it underground. And mm-hmm. This is this is what human beings have always done. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the uh, uh, oldest forms of architecture I feel like is the cairn you know where we just stack rocks mm-hmm. to, to note that something is underneath it whether it's a human body or like a cache of spear points or whatever it is you know the cairn indicates that there's something down there uh, to take note of so if you if you if you were going to hide something <laughs> from the general public you'd put it underground and so if you look at places like area 51 and you note like North Korea or these Chinese bases that there's very little surface architecture. Right. That doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean anything. There could be a vast subterranean infrastructure down there where um, all sorts of things are being stored and things that, that um, uh, people don't necessarily want us to know about. But there's a, there's a, there's a wider point here that I think is important. Um, and it's about, it's about, geopolitics and capitalism (laughs) we've got right now people in power in countries across the world who seem to be actively undermining democratic structures undermining the very environment we live in tearing at the social fabric i mean trump trump is an obvious person we can point to as someone who's clearly does not care about the future of the country or or the well-being of the populace. You know, he seems to have some other kind of motive. Hmm. Um, in in uh, the UK, it's very interesting to note that a lot of the people who were spearheading the charge for Brexit, which obviously was going to cause economic and social damage, mm-hmm. you know, it's a kind of anti anti globalization, right? Where we retreat back into the back into the uh, smaller body of the nation state. Hmm a lot of those people profited massively off of that. So Jacob, Jacob Reese Mogg, for instance, uh, in the lead up to Brexit bet against the pound. So he, he basically had put money into uh, uh, currency markets, betting that the pound was going to tank as he was pushing for Brexit. So of course, once Brexit went through and the pound tanked, uh, he made about 7 million pounds Mm-hmm. off of that whole thing. Boris Johnson of course also pushing for Brexit became prime minister. 
what's amazing to me is that is that there's a you know we have all these conspiracy theories about like there's a new world order there's some like cabal of of old men who are conspiring to do something nefarious it's not a secret they're right there <laughs> you know it's not a conspiracy theory these people are actively undermining democratic institutions they're destroying economies they're destroying uh society's social fabric family bonds and they're doing it all so that they can they can rake in their own personal profits so it is what it is right that's what's happening what's amazing to me is that is that people don't feel like um uh there's something deeper at work there hmm you know, if you were going, if you were acting in that way, wouldn't it be because you know that there is no future <laughs> or because you know something terrible is coming or something terrible is going to be revealed? I mean, what what possibly could be the motivation? Because they're acting as if um, yeah. we're going to be in crisis anyway in 10, 20 years. So it feels to me like like they do know something. And that may be about climate change, which is obvious, mm -hmm. or maybe maybe about something even weirder, like you know these alien materials that that uh, fell out of the sky the other day. <laughs> yeah. and the Air Force said <laughs> yeah. that they they were not produced on Earth or something at Area Fifty One. I mean, it's hard it's hard not to go into the realm of conspiracy theory here because we are living in the midst of a massive conspiracy theory, yeah. which is you know the uh, the undermining of the entire our entire existence. So when people tell me that prepping is paranoid, <laughs> I tell them that I think prepping is rational, rational because just look at the way that, um, you know, civilization, I'll put that in scare quotes, but, you know, look at the way that technology has rapidly accelerated. Look at the way that our, our world has been transformed. Look at the way that we've extracted resources um, and understand that the, things cannot continue as they are, you know, the human population keeps expanding, cities keep densifying, like something is going to break somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the pandemic is, um, you know, has been tragic for a lot of people, but it's actually, it's actually also given us pause. It's actually given the, the, the earth some space to breathe for a little bit. It may have bought us some time. I do feel like there is something on the horizon something terrible that people in power know about. And that's why they're acting in the way that they are. And what could that, what could that something be? Like, I think obviously we think we can think of the Yellowstone National Park, for example, like what if that just goes, you know, the shit and everything just explodes or whatever. There's meteorites, there's like climate change. Like what else, what else could, could there be? Like, cause I, it's kind of, it's kind of like, I feel like we're just puppets, you know, we're just little humans on this planet art being controlled by a few people. And like, what, like, it's kind of selfish for these people not to, you know, share this information because, like, we're all just humans. We're all trying to survive, and that's kind of scary in a way. The world, the way we're just puppets, and we we don't actually know what's going on. Um, but like, yeah, what 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 do you think could possibly happen that we need to, you know, go go inside a bunker and live there for years, even? Well, the you know, the human mind always wants it to be a, a specific and particular event. Okay, right. That's 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 easier to understand if you're like it's going to be a nuclear war next week, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but I don't think I don't think that's what it is. 
I think it's climate change. I think that they, they know that, um, that we're not going to survive this. Uh, and it's not going to be cataclysmic. It's not going to be like the Yellowstone caldera exploding. It's just going to be an incremental breakdown of everything we know. I'm, I'm sitting in the middle of this right now in California. The entire West coast of the United States is on fire right now. Yeah. It's not even fire season yet. You know, I mean, this is unprecedented. Um, the erratic weather is going to lead to crop failures. It's going to lead to breakdown of social order. I, I just feel like we're in the midst of a slow deterioration that started a while ago. And I think the people who are in power um, knew that it was happening, but they wouldn't stop it from happening because it wasn't in their political, political or economic interests. And it's quite obvious that we're past a tipping point right now. I mean, the, the, the uh, uh, rogue English scientist, James Lovelock, when they asked him what his uh, solution was for climate change, he said, enjoy your, enjoy your life while you can, you know, there's no, there's nothing we can do about this. You know, that's a terrifying prospect that we've, we've passed the threshold. We've passed the tipping point. And that aside from like a massive geoengineering project where we, you know, like physically alter the weather ourselves. um, The only solution really is to, is to build hardened architecture, you know, like uh, in Australia, people have started putting fire bunkers in their backyards. Hmm. This is, this is astounding, right? Like the possibility of your house being burned down in a fire is so likely that you would spend, you know, 20,000 Euro digging up your backyard and uh, you know, plunking a, a bunker in there to survive. I feel like this is our, this is our future. You know, this is where everything is headed and I don't think there's anything we can do about it. Wow. No. Oh my God. Um, that's really giving me a lot of food for thought now. Um, I never actually thought about these things, but like the way you put it, like it actually makes complete sense. Like there's so much going on and it's getting worse and worse. Like if you look at, like I, I usually look at, like instead of looking at, you know, media through my phone or social media, whatever, I like to look at Wikipedia current events because that, that gives you factual and um, non-biased information. And like when I scroll down and look through, you know, what's going on around the world, like it's pretty crazy, like the amount of, thing, the amount of things that are going on, like the fires and just everything in general, like the amount of natural disasters and maybe, maybe like maybe that like of course we can't know for sure what these you know leaders of the world are thinking but like just just by your observations and by like what what we see in the world i think that's pretty likely actually and it's kind of scary so maybe that's why elon musk wants to escape over to mars you never know (laughs) exactly well what so what so all of these all of these uh uh, billionaires around the world are either as well Yeah. yeah exactly Exactly. So, yeah, Bezos wants to um, Richard Branson. colonize. Or, sorry, Bezos wants to mine the moon. Uh-huh. Branson wants to have tourism in space. Musk wants to escape. <laughs> and they all have bunkers. Do Doesn't they? that freak you out? You know, <laughs> they all have bunkers. Yeah. Wow. All, so many people in um, in Silicon Valley and the tech industry um, uh, are, are 
not necessarily building bunkers, but they're but they're certainly building um, spaces to escape to. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've, I'm sure you've seen this story about pe- stories about people buying land in New Zealand so that they can escape if you know the worst were to happen. Um, it's like you know, it's an insurance policy that they're mm. putting in place for for a kind of worst case scenario. But I guess um, the question for me is like. If, if all of these people who are in power and who have money are making plans for something terrible to happen, what is it we don't know? Right? Yeah. It, it feels like they have access to some information that we don't have. And that could just be an awareness of the, of the things that they're building. You know, if you're, if you're working on, in automation or in artificial intelligence and you know that you're creating a technology that is going to lead to like massive unemployment um then yeah you might want to have an escape plan for that situation because you're the one that's going to be blamed but you know again like with politicians it's amazing that we've we've entered a kind of era where people would be that selfish Mm. that they would continue building systems that they know would be fundamentally detrimental to human society yeah. and yet they carry on for what reason just for their own i mean it's just it just seems like it comes from a space of hubris hmm. or maybe maybe these people actually well i don't know um uh, maybe these people suspect that something might be wrong and they're just preparing just in case because like it doesn't it doesn't make sense for human to cause more harm to other humans just so a small percentage of humans can actually survive like it it makes sense to collectively flourish because like if you know we we kind of we're we're a social being we need other people around us we can't just survive and it's small little groups and like you know that raises a lot of questions to me now so like okay so let's just say that is happening let's just say you know this this all might be correct and there's actually like a big in the grand scheme of things like everything just might you know completely collapse and we might die or whatever and um, like what's the best way to prepare for you know for the average person living on this planet or that we you know um, like what's the best way to prepare like what skills should we focus on because i feel like skills like hunting like you know making food like uh filtering water correctly like all these skills are just becoming increasingly well relevant now because in case this happens but um from your research from your you know from everything you've done over the years like what's the best way for us to live life because it, it is kind of scary when you think about it I, I wish I had the answer to that question. <laughs> um, I I think that for me, the most important thing is to is to think about how we're living. Um, like like most people, I went to university. I lived in big cities. I always planned on getting a job at a university that was going to mean that I was I was going to have to live in those cities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I've been living paycheck to paycheck because the rent is astronomical in places like Dublin. I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah, here's it's... my paycheck and the, you just hand it to the landlord. Uh, you yeah. know, like it doesn't enable you to build any resiliency into your life. And so I think the the the, the real reckoning that we all are going to have to deal with is the possibility that the way that we've been conditioned um, to think that we should live go to university, move to a big city, get the high paying job, you know, 
work, work yourself six days a week um, and have no space, have no buffer, have no resiliency, you know, rely, rely, rely on food that's coming from unknown sources, rely on infrastructural systems that we have no idea how they work. You know, you flush your toilet, you turn on your tap. It's all like magic. You know, all that is crap. (laughs) It really is. It's just like we, we have, we have allowed ourselves to be duped into thinking that um, everything can be provided for us and that all we have to do in exchange is like give our lives over to a corporation or a university or, you know, whatever other institution um, and that, and that we're going to get by in that way. I think the, the real reckoning is for all of us, including myself, is really thinking about whether this is the best way to live, you know, leaving cities and moving into spaces where you have a bit more space, but where you can also build some resiliency into your life. Yeah. Where you can grow, grow, grow food, where you can get off of electrical grids and and create your own electricity. Um, Where you can um, spend your days like, I don't know, taking care of your, your mental health instead of running in that hamster wheel. I think those are the things that are really going to help us get out of this situation, but it's so hard to break out of these systems. It's so yeah. hard and, and make no mistake. All of everything we've been talking about is, is, is connected, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. The, pe- the people in power do not want you to produce your own electricity, <laughs> You know, we had situations here where, where people would set up, um, they would set up solar arrays and then disconnect themselves from the electrical grid and they would have inspectors show up and find them. I mean, this is crazy, right? Like how can you force people to be, to be a part of this, uh, this network? Hmm. Um, but I don't know the, the counter argument here is exactly what you said. Like we're in this together. And so. I guess, you know, maybe, maybe running away and just taking care of ourselves and our families is not the best attitude if we want to get through this together. Um, But I think it would be delusional to imagine that uh, those in power are, are, are thinking that we're in this together. They're absolutely not. They're in it for themselves. And so I don't know at what point we just have to pull the ripcord and just say, you know what, we're in it for ourselves too. Good luck with all of that over there. Um, it's a tricky balance to strike. I think all that is just fascinating, and like it's kind of it's kind of weird way because like 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 you know we we've, we've been living in a way that you described you know being self sufficient, providing our own food, and um, looking after mental health, spending time in nature, being around family, being social. We were doing these things you know for thousands and thousands of years, and it's only recently that we you know we're we're stuck in a little box you know working away in an office that we don't really in a job that we don't really care about um our mental health is just gone to shit really like there's suicide rates going around there's depression there's anxiety there's so much worry and i feel like like well of course there's problems with every single era that we live in but like oh it's just human nature to kind of provide for ourselves you know be be self-sufficient and you know spend quality time with people and maybe that's maybe we should actually revert to that revert back to that because like you were saying you know skyscrapers and all these things they're just a thing 
just to showcase the economy, whatever, but they're actually very, well, they don't make sense. Actually, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but naturally it does make sense for us to uh, be self-sufficient and not depend on these organizations and governments to, you know, provide us with food. Because like, what if, what if all your supermarkets shut down for some reason and there's no way to get access to food? Like, what are we going to do? And I, I guess that's what, that's the whole concept of prepping, I guess. You've just summarized it beautifully, beautifully. It, you know, imagine, imagine if this virus had a, a fatality rate of 10% mm. instead of 1%. Mm. No one's showing up to the grocery store mm. at that point. There will be no checkers. Yeah. No one's going to drive. No one's going to drive the trucks to bring the food to the store. No one's showing up to work at that point mm-hmm. because no one is going to take a one in 10 risk that they're going to die every time they go to work, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it wouldn't take, I guess my point is it wouldn't take much more. Like the pandemic was, is um, terrible, yeah. but it, but it's also, it's also uh, the fatality rate is quite low on this yeah the numbers on the on the whole look terrible of course you know when you when you look at the news and they're like hundreds of thousands of people have died and you think oh my god you know this is terrible um but you know ima- imagine that it was like you know <laughs> three million people had died 10 million people had died a billion people had died you know you, uh, society would absolutely unravel there's no question about that. And the thing to keep in mind is that the reason why the virus has been so effective is because we built its pathways. You know, we created all of the networks, <laughs> the international flights, the trade, you know, we moved the virus around in a way that it never could have moved a hundred yeah, years true. ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, the virus never would have left China mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, um, so we've created, we, this is, this is what human beings always do. Um, and it, it brings me back to, a uh, a quote from, from, uh, the philosopher Paul Virilio. He said, when you, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, right? Every piece of technology that we create yeah. is supposed to make our, make our lives better or enhance things also creates another problem that we have to contend with. And the question is like, at what point are we outstripped? You know, we keep creating these new things. And then at some point those things backfire terribly. And at some point we're just going to kind of exceed our capacity to deal with the problems that we've created. And it could be that climate change is that situation. Yeah. It could be that, that we, we finally created a situation that we will never be able to solve. Our environment will continue to deteriorate and that might ne- not necessarily mean that in my lifetime or your lifetime, um, but eventually there's like, there's like an extinction level event or something terrible, but it could very well mean that the quality of our lives decreases over the course of them. And that, you know, if, if, if we ever have kids or whatever, you know, that we, they're inheriting, um, uh, a, a, a much worse situation than what we've been dealing with. No. Mm. And all this comes back to a particular ideology. And I think this is this is the this is the point for me and I think exactly what you were getting at. Do you remember do you remember when Margaret Thatcher said there is no society? I don't remember that no. 
So, so yeah, Margaret Thatcher had like the, the, the most incredible thing I, th- I think I've ever heard a human being say. Um, she gave the speech and she said, there is no society. Right. There's the, indi- there's just the individual, uh-huh. right? You make, you make a decision for yourself. Um, uh, uh, and you live with the consequences of those decisions. So that ideology, um, what, what people call neoliberalism, right? Where it's sort of, it's all about economics. It's all about capitalism. It's, it's every person for themselves. Mm-hmm. That is what's got us into this situation. Yeah. Greed. Yeah. And, and yeah. And so here's, here's the, here's the conundrum, right? If we just decide to, um, go back to small scale communities and take care of ourselves and, and quit traveling around. Are we playing into that ideology? <laughs> right. It's, yeah. you know, because, because the only way, for instance, that we're going to be able to solve climate change is for all these countries to work together on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of thinking, that globalized thinking is also what's created the problem. Right. Yeah. Sorry, we're going down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> no, it's a it's a very interesting rabbit hole. I'm really enjoying this, and I mean, you brought up a lot of good points, and oh, yeah, I guess nobody really knows the ultimate solution because if if we did, we'd probably do it. But um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know what to say. It's just it's such a interesting well, subject, but like. Every- everything that we're dealing with are, are, are existential threats. Yeah. Right? And existential threats are almost invariably things that have been created by human beings. Mm-hmm. Because if we, if we go back to the past, what kind of, what kind of threats did we deal with? It would be like, you know, war with the neighbors or we had a drought this year and the crops didn't do well. Like they were all very localized. Right. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, we didn't necessarily know what was going on in the rest of the world and we didn't need to. Now we've created situations like climate change, like nuclear war, like artificial intelligence that could affect every single person on the planet at the same time. Um, we also, as I, as I mentioned, created those pathways for the pandemic, which could have been a localized event, but wasn't because we've, we've turned it into an existential threat, something, yeah. something that is a threat to all of humanity. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you have to go one of two ways. Either you have to figure out how to deal with existential threats. Like we have to solve them, which seems totally impossible. Or we have to go back to the old ways, which is like, uh, let's get rid of the nuclear weapons. Let's try and go back to local. Let's stop traveling. Let's just shut it all down, you know, and go and go back to the way that things did function for millions of years. And clearly we're functioning just fine. Yeah. Until we until we created all of these structures. That seems equally daunting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that makes sense to me because like sometimes I look at myself and I'm definitely in a privileged position. You know, I'm living in Dublin, Ireland. I have a comfortable home. I have food. I have water. I have all these things. And for me, maybe climate change, you know, wouldn't really affect me too much. But when I, when I look at the global scale, when I look at the amount of people that are, you know, that their homes were just completely washed away by floods or their houses are burning or like all these things are happening around the world. And, 
you know, they don't affect me, so here I am, just living my normal life, blah, blah, blah. But that's so selfish of me. Like, I mean, we should do everything in our power to help everyone live a meaningful and enjoyable life, but it's just not the case. There's so much inequality in the world, and it's just unfair the way, like, some of us are so privileged to have all these things. And maybe, you know, like, you look at Trump or, like, you look at all these leaders who just don't give a shit about climate change and it just doesn't make a sense and i guess maybe coronavirus maybe all these things maybe they're just a disguise in you know for the actual problem which is climate change and like if you know if you look at the fatality rates of coronavirus and you compare them with suicide the um, suicide rates or climate change how many deaths happen from that just natural causes like those things just completely outblow like coronavirus and you know, I feel like we we kind of got distracted, you know, coronavirus, coronavirus, all these things. And actually, there's in the grand scheme of things, like there's much bigger problems that we should be facing, but nobody really knows about it until somebody posts it on social media. And then everyone suddenly starts posting stuff on social media. Oh, yeah, look, I, I support this now. I support this. But there's so, so many things that we don't even know about. And it's kind of selfish the way, you know, I, I just think, yeah, it's it's shocking, really. Well, so. Yeah. So do you think that do you think do you think that media itself is perpetuating these problems in the sense that, like I said, if if in the past, if something terrible was happening on the other side of the world, you wouldn't necessarily know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're having to to live with this this kind of despair of knowing about all the terrible things that are happening at all corners of the globe all the time. Yeah. And then and then what you're feeling is a sense of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like I should do something about that or at the least I should modify my behavior to try and help mitigate that thing that's happening to someone in Indonesia or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like our ancestors would have thought that that is a crazy way to think. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, but by the time they receive that news, like a month later, whatever terrible thing had happened would have already happened so i guess it's it's like it's hard to unpick it's hard to unpick whether um the disasters that are happening are increasing in frequency and severity or whether our awareness of them is yeah that's that's or, a, that's a good you point. know what i mean yeah like, i do yeah so it's and you can't you can't act on everything yeah which brings me back to feeling like the best solution here is just to take care of our ourselves and our family and our local community. But as you say, then we have to, we, we have to live with um, uh, knowing that that's a, it's a selfish choice because a lot of people aren't able to make those decisions or, you know, people are in their situations are so much worse that mm. it's, um, it's not something that they would be able to do. I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, it's it's a really it's a really tricky problem it is and it's and it's something that we're all living with and i and i feel like the desire to to prep to harden architecture to stockpile food you know all of that comes from a sense of dread about the future about what other people are experiencing um and i i feel like the the psychological impacts of everything that we're dealing with is having a is is um gonna cause some kind of irreversible shift you know suicide rates are higher than they've ever been among 
young people mm-hmm. in the United States. And, and it's because of a sense of, of despair mm. about the way that the world is going. So how do we find hope? Like what, what is it we do that gives us hope and keeps us excited and keeps us interesting and keeps us making podcasts and doing degrees and traveling and, 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 you know, exploring and excavating sites and sharing stories. What is it that keeps us going? That, I think that's, that's the important thing. And that answer might be different for everyone. That's true. Find your own meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you brought up a good point and I think, I think the best thing we can do, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like there's no point in worrying about, you know, well, it's good to have it in mind, but like the best thing we can do is to help ourselves, help our families, help our communities. And then once we're in a, in a good enough position, then perhaps we can go out and help other people. Cause I know for me, I, I feel like sometimes I just go for a walk and I'm like, I just think about these things. I'm like, okay, so somebody out there doesn't have food today. Somebody out there doesn't have water. And here I am yeah. drinking this glass of water. How selfish is that, you know? Or like here I am debating whether or not to buy a $5 coffee or a $7 coffee, whatever. Just such a nice privilege <laughs> to have. But I guess the best thing we can do is to, like I've been really recently got recently got into like, well, not recently, maybe over, over the past two years, um, got into like spirituality and thinking about the present moment and just enjoying the present moment just as it is, you know, just looking at the trees, looking, oh, how grateful I am to be, to have eyes to even look at this tree or whatever, just having that sense of gratitude and living in the present moment. And I guess just doing the best I can with each day that I have and then whatever happens, happens, I guess it's out of my control, control what I can control and then forget about what I can't control. Yeah, it's it's a big problem. <laughs> you, you know what's you know what's interesting is that have you have you ever read When Things Fall Apart? I haven't, but I'll look into it. It's a, okay, so if you're if you're interested in spirituality, um uh this is a, a, a wonderful book written by a, a Buddhist nun. Mm-hmm. And it's about it's about embracing all moments, including chaos, including yeah. the, the including despair. And recognizing that, um, what a wonder it is to be able to witness that moment—that we're alive, that we're breathing, that we're conscious. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like d- we, you can never take that for granted. And yeah. what's really interesting, um, and and was very unexpected uh, in terms of my my research with preppers, was that I found that a lot of the preppers have the same attitude. You know, one one of them told me that um, his his mantra that he repeated to himself constantly was prepare for the worst and enjoy the present. I love it. So he, yeah. So he was always just he. On the one hand, he was like, "I'm going to set some things aside. I'm going to stockpile for the future." Just so it you know, yeah. That, yeah, it might mean that I have to sacrifice some things mm-hmm. now. Um, but in the meantime. I'm alive. I can breathe. I I have fresh water. You know, I'm able to do this. Like, what a joy! What a joy that I'm that I'm here and I'm able to take care of myself and my family. And I imagined when I started this research project in 2017 that the that these people were going to be, you know, paranoid and frustrated and and angry and you know filled with despair. And actually, that's not what I found at all. I, I found that they were they were full of hope and um, um, that they didn't just have hope in the future, but they they saw 
a wealth of opportunity in the present. And, and a lot of them had the same kind of peace that I, that I find in people who have found spirituality, right? They yeah. Just, like they accepted that they couldn't do anything about nuclear war or climate change. Um, and if they had the resources, they could funnel resources in that direction. But in the meantime, what they could do was they, they could, you know, build themselves a safe space to be able to weather some of that disaster. And they just, most of them just seemed incredibly grateful that they had the resources to be able to do that. Yeah. And that, um, there's there's not like a scale that you need to attach to that like if you can if you can set aside a hundred euro a month that you just keep as a little buffer mm-hmm. like that's your prep that's your prepping mm-hmm. you know what i mean if that gives you peace um then do it mm. it's really important like self-care is so important especially now you know and especially in the context of all the things we've been talking about yeah self-care self-care is so important um, and that might mean doing something for someone else, or it might mean doing something for yourself, but it, it certainly should lead all of us to, um, uh, making a little more space full stop. Yeah. Just make a little bit more space, space to breathe, you know, space to think, yeah. space to share. Maybe that's what gets us through this. Maybe. And I think I think reading the book um, "Man's Search for Meaning" is quite insightful as well. When you look at someone who's you know who who faced a lot of um, challenges in his life and how he found meaning in you know in in suffering really and how he got should you know throughout his days, I think that's really. But yeah, I think I think the whole self care aspect is super important. And I think in my life, I kind of look at you know where do I want to prioritize my time because like you know we all have 24 hours in a day and how are you going to prioritize it and for me I make sure that I prioritize my own health so that involves you know getting enough sleep it it involves getting good nutrition it involves spending time with people I care about it involves reading it involves spending time in nature it involves meditation it involves exercise all these things I think like like those things should always be prioritized because like you can always work more you can always you know be busy 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 do more and you still have like a million things to do and like is that the point of living i don't think so i think the point of living is just to appreciate everything you know and just be present in the moment enjoying whatever you do instead of you know thinking oh yeah i'm gonna do this i'm gonna once i finish i'll be happy because i'll be in that position in in my career whatever but like it just doesn't make sense i guess and i i absolutely love your point but you know self-care should be should be a thing we we should all be thinking about and i think maybe this whole pandemic and everything that's going on around the world maybe people are just gonna be more appreciative of, of what they have you know the the actual opportunity to spend time with your family or with your friends or talk to your mom like it's 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 amazing um really is no, you're right i maybe maybe the middle ground here that we've been searching for is thinking that you know <laughs> is accepting that tomorrow uh might not look like today mm-hmm. conditions might be a little worse things mm-hmm. might be more difficult but tomorrow is also not the end of the world mm-hmm. right yeah so you you know you can take some time for yourself that's okay you know cuz cuz the world is messy and and we all need that yeah and that's how we and that's how we're going to get through you know in a way that's a little bit more incremental it's not the it's not the magical thinking of 
you know, if I break my back seven days a week at work, then by the time I'm 50 or 60, I'll be retired and I can do whatever I want. That's, you know, we, we all know that that's, that that's a fallacy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's also not just a, a kind of um, nihilism where we're like, well, there is no tomorrow. So let's just blow ourselves out and do whatever, you know, it's as, as Siddhartha said, the middle path is the one we seek. You know? Yeah. Well, look, we started off talking about, you know, all the things that are going on in the world, everything, all bad things. And now we kind of finished off on a positive note. So I think it's a good opportunity to finish up the podcast. But before we do, I would love to ask you some rapid fire questions. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> so out of all, so you started the Bunker Project in 2017. And I'm curious like, mm-hmm. to know what are your three biggest takeaways from that project? Like, what did you learn? Like, what are the three things that really stood out to you? Uh, three things that stood out to me are that um, the future is going to be steeped in disaster. There's hope in disaster and that community is the way to get through those, those problems. Love it. Um, what's the best investment you ever made? Now this investment might be time. It might be energy. It might be money. Just in general, what's the most worthwhile or best investment you ever made? I think it was, I, I think it was the investment in my education. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was not an easy path, mm-hmm. but my PhD led to research time, which led to me being able to do all these amazing research projects and meet people and travel the world. And I, I, I can't imagine any other path that I could have taken. If you could, if you know, if you could know the answer to any three questions, what would your questions be? So you ask these questions and you'll just suddenly find out the answer to that question, the ultimate truth to that question. What would you, what would your three questions be? I'd like to know, I would like, okay, this is a really weird one, but I would like to know, I want to see all of the resources left, like mm. helium, aluminum, hard metals, you know, borax i don't know whatever weird like i would love to be able to like see a kind of holistic chart of the earth and all the breakdown of the resources so that i could know exactly when something's going to run out (laughs) i love that and that that would and that would tell us like how long we have yeah in in a particular thing um uh i would love to know i would love to know if the population of the earth is going to be more or less in a thousand years. Interesting. Cause that would give us a sense of a trajectory. Um, and the last thing that I'd want to know is what is under the ocean. 70% of the earth is covered in ocean. We've explored almost none of it. I want to know what's in there. It drives me nuts. I think about it all the time. We spend all this money exploring space. We have no idea what's in the ocean. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, I would love to know the answer to these questions. Um, what If there was a billboard and you could display any message on that billboard, and this billboard is displayed to millions and billions of people in the world, so anyone in the whole entire world can see this billboard, a non-commercial message. Um, yeah, what would your message be? <laughs> oh man. Uh, 
I think I think it I think it should just say don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Mm-hmm. What is something that you believe in that other people believe is insane? Or think is I insane? believe No, I be- I believe, I truly believe that the world is absolutely filled with underground government bunkers that we know <laughs> nothing about. And I, and I and I no seriously but think about this during the Cold War we had no idea that the government was building these bunkers for themselves, yeah. right? And then suddenly they were revealed. It was like, oh, there's an underground city underneath Wiltshire in England. Weird. Okay. And we just accept it. I think we're going to find out in the future that so much of the underground is absolutely filled with with underground bunkers. Um, and it, the, the, the scale of these things is going to be astonishing. It's going to be like discovering an alien planet. I guess one day we'll find out. <laughs> um, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, I hope so. I, ho- I really hope yeah. so. <laughs> or maybe we're all blinded by a flash of light and then the people who <laughs> crawl out of those bunkers say, oh, we never told them about this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. If you could, If you could master any three skills instantly, what would they be? Um, archery I think would be fantastic I spent years studying archery but um, I was just reading this amazing book about a history of the Comanches and how they would put six arrows in their fingers and then rapid fire them from horseback yeah 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 yeah. I would love to be able to do that (laughs) wow Um, horseback riding would definitely be the second one yeah, like I they would go hand to hand, be yeah. A ma- yeah, a master, a master rider, um, and I want to know how to build a house, start to finish, pour the foundation, build the frame. Like I have absolutely no idea, and I swear to you, I like I watch people. Whenever I see someone building a house, I stop, and I become entranced because it just it seems like magic to me. Like how do you know what angles to cut or where to put those pieces of wood? Like I have no idea. And this seems to me like such a basic function of being a human being. I can't even build shelter for myself. It's ridiculous. And at this point of the podcast, Bradley's phone overheated due to the wildfires that are happening in California. And we we had to stop recording. If you enjoy the podcast, give it a share. Tell your friends. Leave a rating. It's the best way to support the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed it. Have a wonderful day. Dom, can you hear me? I can. I hope the f- car didn't go on fire. <laughs> you know what? My fo- my phone actually overheated from the heat of the fires. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. I, sh- I should probably make a move. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, I guess that's the podcast over then, if that's the case. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sorry, sorry to cut your rapid fire questions short, but uh, I better get out of here, man. <laughs>